This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life in the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 31 A Thumbprint and What Came of It. We were approaching Napoleon, Arkansas, so I began to think about my errand there. Time, noonday, and bright and sunny. This was bad, not best, anyway, for mine was not, preferably, a noonday kind of errand. The more I thought, the more that fact pushed itself upon me, now in one form, now in another. Finally it took the form of a distinct question. Is it good common sense to do the errand in daytime, when by a little sacrifice of comfort and inclination you can have night for it, and no inquisitive eyes around? This settled it. Plain question and plain answer make the shortest road out of most perplexities. I got my friends into my stateroom, and said I was sorry to create annoyance and disappointment but that, upon reflection, it really seemed best that we put our luggage ashore and stop over at Napoleon. Their disapproval was prompt and loud, their language mutinous. Their main argument was one which has always been the first to come to the surface, in such cases, since the beginning of time. But you decided and agreed to stick to this boat, etc., as if, having determined to do an unwise thing, one is thereby bound to go ahead and make two unwise things of it, by carrying out that determination. I tried various mollifying tactics upon them, with reasonably good success, under which encouragement I increased my efforts, and to show them that I had not created this annoying errand, and was in no way to blame for it, I presently drifted into its history, substantially as follows. Toward the end of last year I spent a few months in Munich, Bavaria. In November I was living in Fraulein Dahlweiner's pension, 1A Karlstrasse, but my working quarters were a mile from there, in the house of a widow who supported herself by taking lodgers. She and her two young children used to drop in every morning and talk German to me, by request. One day, during a ramble about the city, I visited one of the two establishments where the government keeps and watches corpses, until the doctors decide that they are permanently dead, and not in a trance state. It was a grisly place, that spacious room. There were thirty-six corpses of adults in sight stretched on their backs on slightly slanted boards, in three long rows, all of them with wax-white rigid faces, and all of them wrapped in white shrouds. Along the sides of the room were deep alcoves, like bay windows, and in each of these lay several marble-visaged babes, utterly hidden and buried under banks of fresh flowers, all but their faces and crossed hands. Around a finger of each of these fifty still forms, both great and small, was a ring, and from the ring a wire led to the ceiling, and thence to a bell in a watch-room yonder, where, day and night, a watchman sits always alert and ready to spring to the aid of any of that pallid company who, waking out of death, shall make a movement, for any, even the slightest, movement will twitch the wire and ring that fearful bell. 
I imagined myself a death-sentinel, drowsing there alone, far in the dragging watches of some wailing, gusty night, and having, in a twinkling, all my body stricken to quivering jelly by the sudden clamor of that awful summons. So I inquired about this thing, asked what resulted usually, if the watchman died, and the restored corpse came and did what it could to make his last moments easy. But I was rebuked for trying to feed an idle and frivolous curiosity in so solemn and so mournful a place, and went my way with a humbled crest. Next morning I was telling the widow my adventure, when she exclaimed, "'Come with me. I have a lodger who shall tell you all you want to know. He has been a night watchman there.' He was a living man, but he did not look it. He was abed, and had his head propped high on pillows. His face was wasted and colorless. His deep-sunken eyes were shut. His hand, lying on his breast, was talon-like. It was so bony and long-fingered. The widow began her introduction of me. The man's eyes opened slowly, and glittered wickedly out from the twilight of their caverns. He frowned a black frown. He lifted his lean hand, and waved us peremptorily away. But the widow kept straight on, till she had got out the fact that I was a stranger and an American. The man's face changed at once, brightened, became even eager, and the next moment he and I were alone together. I opened up in cast-iron German. He responded in quite flexible English. Thereafter we gave the German language a permanent rest. This consumptive and I became good friends. I visited him every day and we talked about everything. At least about everything but wives and children. Let anybody's wife or anybody's child be mentioned, and three things always followed. The most gracious and loving and tender light glimmered in the man's eyes for a moment, faded out the next, and in its place came that deadly look which had flamed there the first time I ever saw his lids unclose. Thirdly, he ceased from speech there and then for that day lay silent, abstracted, and absorbed, apparently heard nothing that I said, took no notice of my good-byes, and plainly did not know by either sight or hearing when I left the room. When I had been this Karl Ritter's daily and sole intimate during two months, he one day said abruptly, "'I will tell you my story.' A dying man's confession. Then he went on as follows, "'I have never given up until now.' But now I have given up. I am going to die. I made up my mind last night that it must be, and very soon, too. You say you are going to revisit your river, by and by, when you find opportunity. Very well. That, together with a certain strange experience which fell to my lot last night, determines me to tell you my history, for you will see Napoleon, Arkansas, and for my sake you will stop there and do a certain thing for me, a thing which you will willingly undertake, after you shall have heard my narrative. Let us shorten the story wherever we can, for it will need it, being long. You already know how I came to go to America, and how I came to settle in that lonely region in the South. But you do not know that I had a wife. My wife was young, beautiful, loving, and oh so divinely good and blameless and gentle! And our little girl was her mother in miniature. It was the happiest of happy households. 
One night, it was toward the close of the war, I woke up out of a sodden lethargy, and found myself bound and gagged, and the air tainted with chloroform. I saw two men in the room, and one was saying to the other, in a hoarse whisper, I told her I would, if she made a noise, and as for the child, the other man interrupted in a low, half-crying voice, You said we'd only gag them and rob them, not hurt them, or I wouldn't have come. Shut up your whining. Had to change the plan when they waked up. You done all you could to protect them. Now let that satisfy you. Come, help rummage. Both men were masked, and wore coarse, ragged, nigger clothes. They had a bull's-eye lantern, and by its light I noticed that the gentler robber had no thumb on his right hand. They rummaged around my poor cabin for a moment. The head bandit then said in his stage whisper, "'It's a waste of time. He shall tell where it's hid. Undo his gag, and revive him up.' The other said, "'All right, provided no clubbing.' "'No clubbing it is, then, provided he keeps still.' They approached me. Just then there was a sound outside, a sound of voices and trampling hoofs. The robbers held their breath and listened. The sounds came slowly nearer and nearer. Then came a shout. "'Hello, the house! Show a light! We want water!' "'The captain's voice, by gah!' said the stage-whispering ruffian. And both robbers fled by the way of the back door, shutting off their bull's eye as they ran. The strangers shouted several times more, then rode by. There seemed to be a dozen of the horses, and I heard nothing more. I struggled, but could not free myself from my bonds. I tried to speak, but the gag was effective. I could not make a sound. I listened for my wife's voice and my child's, listened long and intently, but no sound came from the other end of the room where their bed was. This silence became more and more awful, more and more ominous every moment. Could you have endured an hour of it, do you think? Pity me, then, who had to endure three. Three hours? It was three ages. Whenever the clock struck, it seemed as if years had gone by since I had heard it last. All this time I was struggling in my bonds, and at last, about dawn, I got myself free, and rose up and stretched my stiff limbs. I was able to distinguish details pretty well. The floor was littered with things thrown there by the robbers during their search for my savings. The first object that caught my particular attention was a document of mine, which I had seen the rougher of the two ruffians glance at and then cast away. It had blood on it. I staggered to the other end of the room. Oh, my poor, unoffending, helpless ones! There they lay. Their troubles ended. Mine begun. Did I appeal to the law? I? Does it quench the pauper's thirst if the king drink for him? Oh, no, no, no! I wanted no impertinent interference of the law. Laws and the gallows could not pay the debt that was owing to me. Let the laws leave the matter in my hands and have no fears. I would find the debtor and collect the debt. How accomplish this, do you say? How accomplish it, and feel so sure about it, when I had neither seen the robber's face nor heard their natural voices, nor had any idea who they might be? Nevertheless, I was sure, quite sure, quite confident. I had a clue, a clue which you would not have valued, a clue which would not have greatly helped even a detective, since he would lack the secret of how to apply it. 
I shall come to that presently. You shall see. Let us go on now, taking things in their due order. There was one circumstance which gave me a slant in a definite direction to begin with. Those two robbers were manifestly soldiers in tramp disguise, and not new to military service, but old in it, regulars perhaps. They did not acquire their soldierly attitude, gestures, carriage, in a day nor a month, nor yet in a year. So I thought, but said nothing. And one of them had said, the captain's voice by gah, the one whose life I would have. Two miles away several regiments were in camp, and two companies of U.S. cavalry. When I learned that Captain Blakely of Company C had passed our way that night with an escort, I said nothing but in that company I resolved to seek my man. In conversation I studiously and persistently described the robbers as tramps, camp followers, and among this class the people made useless search, none suspecting the soldiers but me. Working patiently by night in my desolated home, I made a disguise for myself out of various odds and ends of clothing. In the nearest village I bought a pair of blue goggles, and by and by, when the military camp broke up, and Company C was ordered a hundred miles north to Napoleon, I secreted my small hoard of money in my belt, and took my departure in the night. When Company C arrived in Napoleon, I was already there. Yes, I was there with a new trade, fortune-teller. Not to seem partial, I made friends and told fortunes among all the companies garrisoned there. But— I gave Company C the great bulk of my attentions. I made myself limitlessly obliging to these particular men. They could ask me no favor, put upon me no risk which I would decline. I became the willing butt of their jokes. This perfected my popularity. I became a favorite. I early found a private who lacked a thumb. What joy it was to me! And when I found that he alone of all the company had lost a thumb, my last misgivings vanished. I was sure I was on the right track. This man's name was Kruger, a German. There were nine Germans in the company. I watched to see who might be his intimates, but he seemed to have no especial intimates. But I was his intimate, and I took care to make the intimacy grow. Sometimes I so hungered for my revenge that I could hardly restrain myself from going on my knees and begging him to point out the man who had murdered my wife and child. But I managed to bridle my tongue. I bided my time, and went on telling fortunes, as opportunity offered. My apparatus was simple, a little red paint and a bit of white paper. I painted the ball of the client's thumb, took a print of it on the paper, studied it that night, and revealed his fortune to him next day. What was my idea in this nonsense? It was this. When I was a youth, I knew an old Frenchman who had been a prison-keeper for thirty years, and he told me that there was one thing about a person which never changed from the cradle to the grave—the lines in the ball of the thumb. And he said that these lines were never exactly alike in the thumbs of any two human beings. In these days we photograph the new criminal, and hang his picture in the rogues' gallery for future reference. But that Frenchman, in his day, used to take a print of the ball of a new prisoner's thumb, and put that away for future reference. He always said that pictures were no good. Future disguises could make them useless. The thumb's the only sure thing, said he. 
You can't disguise that. And he used to prove his theory, too, on my friends and acquaintances. It always succeeded. I went on telling fortunes. Every night I shut myself in, all alone, and studied the day's thumb-prints with a magnifying glass. Imagine the devouring eagerness with which I pored over those mazy red spirals, with that document by my side, which bore the right-hand thumb and finger-marks of that unknown murderer, printed with the dearest blood, to me, that was ever shed on this earth. And many and many a time I had to repeat the same old disappointed remark, Will they never correspond? But my reward came at last. It was the print of the thumb of the forty-third man of Company C, whom I had experimented on, Private Franz Adler. An hour before, I did not know the murderer's name, or voice, or figure, or face, or nationality. But now I knew all these things. I believed I might feel sure, the Frenchman's repeated demonstrations being so good a warranty. Still there was a way to make sure. I had an impression of Kruger's left thumb. In the morning I took him aside when he was off duty, and when we were out of sight and hearing of witnesses I said impressively, a part of your fortune is so grave that I thought it would be better for you if I did not tell it in public. You and another man, whose fortune I was studying last night, Private Adler, have been murdering a woman and a child. You are being dogged. Within five days both of you will be assassinated." He dropped on his knees, frightened out of his wits and for five minutes he kept pouring out the same set of words, like a demented person, and in the same half-crying way which was one of my memories of that murderous night in my cabin. "'I didn't do it! Upon my soul I didn't do it! And I tried to keep him from doing it! I did! As God is my witness, he did it alone!' This was all I wanted, and I tried to get rid of the fool. But no, he clung to me, imploring me to save him from the assassin. He said, I have money, ten thousand dollars hid away, the fruit of loot and thievery. Save me. Tell me what to do, and you shall have it every penny. Two-thirds of it is my cousin Adler's, but you can take it all. We hid it when we first came here, but I hid it in a new place yesterday, and have not told him, shall not tell him. I was going to desert, and get away with it all. It is gold, and too heavy to carry when one is running and dodging. But a woman who has been gone over the river two days to prepare my way for me is going to follow me with it, and if I got no chance to describe the hiding-place to her, I was going to slip my silver watch into her hand, or send it to her, and she would understand. There's a piece of paper in the back of the case which tells it all. Here, take the watch. Tell me what to do." He was trying to press his watch upon me, and was exposing the paper and explaining it to me, when Adler appeared on the scene about a dozen yards away. I said to poor Kruger, "'Put up your watch. I don't want it. You shan't come to any harm. Go now. I must tell Adler his fortune. Presently I will tell you how to escape the assassin. Meantime I shall have to examine your thumb-mark again. Say nothing to Adler about this thing. Say nothing to anybody.' He went away, filled with fright and gratitude, poor devil. I told Adler a long fortune purposely so long that I could not finish it, promised to come to him on guard that night, and tell him the really important part of it, the tragical part of it, I said, so must be out of reach of eavesdroppers. They always kept a picket-watch outside the town, mere discipline and ceremony, 
no occasion for it, no enemy around. Toward midnight I set out, equipped with the countersign, and picked my way toward the lonely region where Adler was to keep his watch. It was so dark that I stumbled right on a dim figure, almost before I could get out a protecting word. The sentinel hailed, and I answered, both at the same moment. I added, "'It's only me, the fortune-teller.' Then I slipped to the poor devil's side, and without a word I drove my dirk into his heart. "'Yeah, whoa!' laughed I. It was the tragedy part of his fortune, indeed. As he fell from his horse, he clutched at me, and my blue goggles remained in his hand, and away plunged the beast dragging him, with his foot in the stirrup. I fled through the woods, and made good my escape, leaving the accusing goggles behind me in that dead man's hand. This was fifteen or sixteen years ago. Since then I have wandered aimlessly about the earth, sometimes at work, sometimes idle, sometimes with money, sometimes with none, but always tired of life and wishing it was done, for my mission here was finished with the act of that night, and the only pleasure, solace, satisfaction I had in all those tedious years was in the daily reflection, I have killed him. Four years ago my health began to fail. I had wandered into Munich, in my purposeless way. Being out of money I sought work and got it, did my duty faithfully about a year, and was then given the berth of night-watchman yonder in that dead-house which you visited lately. The place suited my mood. I liked it. I liked being with the dead, liked being alone with them. I used to wander among those rigid corpses, and peer into their austere faces by the hour. The later the time, the more impressive it was. I preferred the late time. Sometimes I turned the lights low. This gave perspective, you see, and the imagination could play. Always the dim receding ranks of the dead inspired one with weird and fascinating fancies. Two years ago, I had been there a year then, I was sitting all alone in the watch-room, one gusty winter's night, chilled, numb, comfortless, drowsing gradually into unconsciousness. The sobbing of the wind and the slamming of distant shutters falling fainter and fainter upon my dulling ear each moment, when sharp and suddenly that dead bell rang out a blood-curdling alarum over my head. The shock of it nearly paralyzed me, for it was the first time I had ever heard it. I gathered myself together and flew to the corpse-room. About midway down the outside rank a shrouded figure was sitting upright, wagging its head slowly from one side to the other, a grisly spectacle. Its side was toward me. I hurried to it and peered into its face. Heavens! It was Adler! Can you divine what my first thought was? put into words, it was this. It seems, then, you escaped me once. There will be a different result this time. Evidently this creature was suffering unimaginable terrors. Think what it must have been to wake up in the midst of that voiceless hush, and look out over that grim congregation of the dead. What gratitude shone in his skinny white face when he saw a living form before him! and how the fervency of this mute gratitude was augmented when his eyes fell upon the life-giving cordials which I carried in my hands. Then imagine the horror which came into his pinched face when I put the cordials behind me and said mockingly, "'Speak up, Franz Adler. Call upon these dead. Doubtless they will listen and have pity, but here there is none else that will.' He tried to speak, 
but that part of the shroud which bound his jaws held firm and would not let him. He tried to lift imploring hands, but they were crossed upon his breast and tied. I said, Shout, Franz Adler, make the sleepers in the distant streets hear you and bring help. Shout, and lose no time, for there is little to lose. What, you cannot? That is a pity. But it is no matter. It does not always bring help. When you and your cousin murdered a helpless woman and child in a cabin in Arkansas, my wife it was, and my child. They shrieked for help, you remember. But it did no good. You remember that it did no good. Is it not so? Your teeth chatter, then why cannot you shout? Loosen the bandages with your hands. Then you can. Ah, I see your hands are tied. They cannot aid you. How strangely things repeat themselves after long years! For my hands were tied that night, you remember? Yes, tied much as yours are now. How odd that is! I could not pull free. It did not occur to you to untie me. It does not occur to me to untie you. Shh! There's a late footstep. It is coming this way. Hark! How near it is! One can count the footfalls. One, two, three. There, it is just outside. Now is the time. Shout, man, shout! It is the one sole chance between you and eternity. Ah, you see, you have delayed too long. It is gone by. There, it is dying out. It is gone. Think of it. Reflect upon it. You have heard a human footstep for the last time. How curious it must be to listen to so common a sound as that, and know that one will never hear the fellow to it again. Oh, my friend! The agony in that shrouded face was ecstasy to me. I thought of a new torture, and applied it, assisting myself with a trifle of lying invention. That poor Kruger tried to save my wife and child, and I did him a grateful good turn for it when the time came. I persuaded him to rob you, and I and a woman helped him to desert, and got him away in safety. A look as of surprise and triumph shone out dimly through the anguish in my victim's face. I was disturbed disquieted, I said, "'What, then? Didn't he escape?' A negative shake of the head. "'No. What happened, then?' The satisfaction in the shrouded face was still plainer. The man tried to mumble out some words, could not succeed, tried to express something with his obstructed hands, failed, paused a moment, then feebly tilted his head in a meaning way toward the corpse that lay nearest him. "'Dead?' I asked. "'Failed to escape?' caught in the act and shot? Negative shake of the head. How, then? Again the man tried to do something with his hands. I watched closely, but could not guess the intent. I bent over and watched still more closely. He had twisted a thumb around, and was weakly punching at his breast with it. Ah! Stabbed, do you mean? Affirmative nod, accompanied by a spectral smile of such peculiar devilishness that it struck an awakening light through my dull brain, and I cried, did I stab him, mistaking him for you? For that stroke was meant for none but you. The affirmative nod of the re-dying rascal was as joyous as his failing strength was able to put into its expression. Oh, miserable, miserable me, to slaughter the pitying soul that stood a friend to my darlings when they were helpless, and would have saved them if he could. Miserable, oh, miserable, miserable me! I fancied I heard the muffled gurgle of a mocking laugh. I took my face out of my hands, and saw my enemy sinking back upon his inclined board. 
He was a satisfactory long time dying. He had a wonderful vitality, an astonishing constitution. Yes, he was a pleasant long time at it. I got a chair and a newspaper and sat down by him and read. Occasionally I took a sip of brandy. This was necessary, on account of the cold. But I did it partly because I saw that along at first, whenever I reached for the bottle, he thought I was going to give him some. I read aloud, mainly imaginary accounts of people snatched from the grave's threshold and restored to life and vigor by a few spoonful of liquor and a warm bath. Yes, he had a long, hard death of it, three hours and six minutes from the time he rang his bell. It is believed that in all these eighteen years that have elapsed since the institution of the corpse watch, no shrouded occupant of the Bavarian dead-houses has ever rung its bell. Well, it is a harmless belief. Let it stand at that. The chill of that death-room had penetrated my bones. It revived and fastened upon me the disease which had been afflicting me, but which up to that night had been steadily disappearing. That man murdered my wife and child and in three days hence he will have added me to his list. No matter! God, how delicious the memory of it! I caught him escaping from his grave, and thrust him back into it. After that night I was confined to my bed for a week, but as soon as I could get about I went to the dead-house books and got the number of the house which Adler had died in. A wretched lodging-place it was. It was my idea that he would naturally have gotten hold of Kruger's effects, being his cousin, and I wanted to get Kruger's watch, if I could. But while I was sick, Adler's things had been sold and scattered, all except a few old letters, and some odds and ends of no value. However, through those letters I traced out a son of Kruger's, the only relative left. He is a man of thirty now, a shoemaker by trade, and living at number 14 Königstrasse, Mannheim, widower with several small children. Without explaining to him why, I have furnished two-thirds of his support ever since. Now, as to that watch, see how strangely things happen. I traced it around and about Germany for more than a year, at considerable cost in money and vexation, and at last I got it, got it, and was unspeakably glad, opened it, and found nothing in it. Why, I might have known that that bit of paper was not going to stay there all this time. Of course I gave up that ten thousand dollars then, gave it up, and dropped it out of my mind, and most sorrowfully, for I wanted it for Kruger's son. Last night, when I consented at last that I must die, I began to make ready. I proceeded to burn all useless papers, and sure enough, from a batch of Adlers, not previously examined with thoroughness, out dropped that long-desired scrap. I recognized it in a moment. Here it is. I will translate it. Brick livery stable, stone foundation, middle of town, corner of Orleans and Market, corner toward courthouse, third stone, fourth row, stick notice there, saying how many are to come. There. Take it and preserve it. Kruger explained that that stone was removable, and that it was in the north wall of the foundation, fourth row from the top and third stone from the west. The money is secreted behind it. He said the closing sentence was a blind, to mislead in case the paper should fall into wrong hands. It probably performed that office for Adler. Now I want to beg that when you make your intended journey down the river, 
you will hunt out that hidden money, and send it to Adam Kruger, care of the Mannheim address which I have mentioned. It will make a rich man of him, and I shall sleep the sounder in my grave for knowing that I have done what I could for the son of the man who tried to save my wife and child, albeit my hand ignorantly struck him down, whereas the impulse of my heart would have been to shield and serve him. End of chapter 31